Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi har her på redaktionen holdt en meget lang sommerferie, og den sommerferie har vi brugt på at lave aftaler med en masse intellektuelle, som vi skal tale med i det her efterår. Vi kommer til at tale med forskere, videnskabsfolk, kunstnere, intellektuelle filosofer og aktivister. Vi kommer til at tale med folk fra hele verden, og vi kommer til at tale om alt lige fra eksistensen til klima, kapitalisme og demokrati. Og det bliver vi ved med at gøre, fordi vi tror på, at de idéer og argumenter, der bliver udviklet i en global offentlighed, at de kan være med til at præge den enkelte menneskes liv. Og vi tror på, at langsomme samtaler forandrer verden langsomt. Vi tror på, at der er en forbindelse mellem det, vi taler om i den globale offentlighed og det, man er optaget af i sit nære liv. Og vi er overbevist om, at hvis vi skal skabe den meget store omstilling, som vi står overfor og som er os påkrævet, så bliver vi nødt til at reflektere kritisk, fælles, kærligt over alt lige fra den måde, vi indretter vores nære liv, til den måde, vi mødes sammen i den globale offentlighed på. Der er behov for meget store forandringer, meget stor solidaritet, meget stort samarbejde. Der er behov for idéer, og der er behov for langsomme samtaler. Jeg åbner den her sæson med en samtale med en af verdens mest indflydelsesrige klimajournalister, den amerikanske forfatter og journalist Elizabeth Colbert. Hun har siden år 2000 været staffwriter på The New Yorker, og hun er en helt særlig klimajournalist. Det er hun på grund af hendes metode. Rigtig meget klimalitteratur bliver skrevet af aktivister. Aktivister, som vi også har talt med her i langsomme samtaler, som Bill McKibben eller Andreas Malm. Eller det bliver skrevet af forskere og videnskabsfolk, som vi også har talt med, som eksempelvis Michael E. Mann. Men der er også behov for en tredje måde at opfatte klimakrisen på. Der er behov for, at det bliver konkret og det bliver sansligt. At man kommer hen de steder i verden, hvor forandringerne allerede er tydelige og synlige og præger folks hverdag. Og der er behov for, at de iagtagelser af den konkrete virkelighed bliver forbundet med videnskabsfolkenes erkendelse og indsigter. Og det er det, som er Elisabeth Colberts metode. Hun er journalist, hun er hverken forsker eller aktivist, og hun holder fast i sin journalistiske metode. Hun rejser ud, ser verden med sine egne øjne, hun rejser ud med forskere, hun rejser ud på ekspeditioner, hun er en del af videnskabsteams, og hun taler med dem, der forsker, samtidig med, at hun taler med dem, der bliver berørt af det. Så hun bringer virkeligheden og erkendelsen af den sammen. Hun bringer naturen og naturvidenskaben sammen, og det gør hun på en måde, så klimakrisen bliver tilgængelig og forståelig for os alle sammen, og bliver noget, som vi kan dele med hinanden og tale om. Og det er vigtigt for Elisabeth Colbert, at det ikke bliver en specifik ideologisk dagsorden, at det ikke bliver en dagsorden, der skal mobilisere, at det simpelthen bare bliver en fælles virkelighed, som vi kan dele sammen mellem os, tale om, forstå og i de sidste instans gøre noget ved. Hendes absolute hovedværk er bogen The Six Extinction, som handler om den masseudryddelse, vi er i gang med. Det er første gang i historien, at mennesket er både anledning til og vidne til en masseudryddelse. De fem masseudryddelser, vi kender, har været forårsaget af eksterne begivenheder. Men vi er nu i den helt særlige situation, at vi skal leve med forandringer, som vi selv har skabt. Og det fordrer den måde at fortælle på, den måde at erkende på, som netop kendetegner Elizabeth Colbert og hendes metode. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. I am Rune and especially it's not 
good evening because you're in a different time zone. <laughs> Hello to you, Elizabeth Colbert. Hi. You're with us from Massachusetts, isn't that correct? Yes. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. Oh, thanks for having me. Bone the Six Extinction er netop her i august 2022 udkommet på dansk på forladet Impact Press, og det er den, som er den direkte anledning til vores samtale. Her kommer mit møde med Elisabeth Colbert. Your books have been very influential here, and and especially I'll say the title in Danish, Den Sjette Masseludøen, that came out this this week, and they've been very very important here. I think also because the way you write, that you open up for a larger audience, you keep the scientific jargon to um to a minimum. When I read your books, it's obvious that that you're a journalist because you have this way of formulating yourself that you take very complex matter and you distill them so they're open to a larger group of of readers. But you aren't always an environmental journalist. You started out doing another kind of journalist. How did you start writing about climate and the environment? Well, as you point out, I was a, um, for a long time, I was a, I really covered politics and um, I don't want to get into the weeds of my own, you know, journalistic career, but I went to work at the New Yorker around Uh, 2000. And that was sort of right when um, the web was really taking over the news, you know, the, this very fast news cycle. And it was getting harder and harder for a weekly publication. Because, you know, by the time we came out a week or even two weeks later, uh, there were, you know, the news had really been chewed over so much. So I started thinking about what are issues that, you know, I could write about that were important and that would still be true, you know, a month from now, two months from now, a year from now. And that sort of set me off on this path of writing a three-part series on climate change. And that's how I have really got going. But I, I will say that I will say, since I'm speaking to a Danish audience, that on some level, this all dates back to a trip that I took to Greenland with some Danish scientists back in um 2001, which was very, very, made a huge impact on me. We went to the top of the Greenland ice sheet, and that was very, very memorable and very made, made a big impression on me. You've become quite an authority on the field of environment and climate crisis and, and biodiversity, but you still write as a journalist, yet you, you seek people who know a lot and ask them questions, and you investigate with a very open mind. And I think in your latest book, Under a White Sky, It's quite clear that you investigate some ideas that you're not necessarily uh, too fond of yourself, but you just investigate them very, very openly. And that makes you a quite a different climate writer from the others that we've been talking to here who are more like activists, like your wonderful colleague, Bill McKibben, who we also love here in the newspaper, or, or activists like Andreas Malm or, or scientists like Mike, Michael E. Mann. You have your quite own style of Of, of writing and, and and doing your books, which is really, I think, to employ the method of journalism to the highest level. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you work and your method? Well, as you say, it's it's, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. I, I really, you know, spend a lot of my time, as much of my time as possible, just going out with people. Uh, I really, I love to go out into the field with scientists. Um, that was kind of, Um, not very easy to do during COVID, but um, now things are starting up again. So that that's good. Um, 
but I, I don't see myself as an activist. I really do, you know, hew to the old, you know, maybe old fashioned uh, journalistic idea that we should report the facts and people should decide how they feel. And I think that climate and reporting, which is like a lot of reporting in the States, and I can't obviously speak for Europe, but people in, you know, in the States, we've become so divided along partisan lines that almost everything now is seen through the lens of partisanship and it's seen as a sort of failure to concede anything to the other side. And that is, I think, a, a big problem. It's a big problem for conveying accurate uh, information. You know, I don't think we should uh, sugarcoat or in any way manipulate the information we're giving to people to because we want a certain outcome. I guess as a journalist, I'm 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 wary of that. But I feel as an editor of a journalistic medium. Uh, as well, I feel there's always an ambivalence because it's like if you're reporting a house that is on fire, you, you can't say, well, the flames are on the building and on the roof. You want to say to people, well, put it out, put the fire out. And to me, there's always this ambivalence about writing that, you know, you don't want to be activist because these are basic facts that we all share and we don't want them to we don't want them to be objects of cultural wars or cultural struggle we cannot solve this problem if we don't work together and we need to protect our journalist integrity especially in this time of age uh, on the other hand i feel sometimes you have to say well please do something this is what what is required and it's it's also in your books actually that that, that there's part of you saying well this is the path that we're taking now and and how, how do you work with this ambivalence if you recognize it Yeah, look, I think it's really, really hard because I think that um, it's in in the climate space. Let's just talk about that. And, you know, there's many spaces where this is also true, but I would say it's true, um, you know, a hundredfold in the climate space. You know, you are pointing to a problem and you're telling people, we really, really need to do something about this. And at the same time, you're telling them, this problem is so big. It's not clear that what you're going to do is going to make any difference, you know, or make much of a difference. Has that, and that's a very difficult message. And so I think a lot of climate journalists, and we saw this very much, and we can talk about this. We saw this, you know, in the coverage of the last, um, you know, we finally got some climate legislation, which was amazing and great and hallelujah. But in that, we saw a lot of, you know, people sort of suggesting, I would say it sort of suggested that this was more significant than it really is in the grand scheme of things. Another thing about climate change, I mean, you you write for a weekly publication, you don't, and you don't write every, every week. So you have the luxury of being an authority who can put out big stories. I think for us as a daily medium, it's very, very difficult because basically many of the stories are the same. Now we have the floods, then we have the droughts, Then we have the forest fires. Now we have the now we have the draft in China, which is a little bit different, and we have it in 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 Germany. And you know, we feel I feel that we're basically telling the same stories all over, all all over again. Do you have any advice or any inspiration to how 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 to deal with this telling what is basically the same story over and over again and keep it interesting and keep people curious? 
Well, that that is such a good question. And I, I you know I struggle with that all the time. And I think that, um, you know, for a story like climate change, which is always going to be with us, you know, I can guarantee everyone who's, you know, on this um, video conference right now, it's going to be with us, you know, the rest of our lives. It's not, it's not going away. It's not, you know, the story of, of the day and it's, it's only going to get worse. Um, so I don't have a great idea of how, you know, daily coverage, I guess, I guess I would say that, uh, you know, I think that it's worth thinking about. It's worth every publication, you know, sort of th- sitting down and and thinking about where to invest resources. You know, since news newsroom resources are limited, where what are some of the bigger stories to sort of try to get, you know, out in front of these stories and not just have you know the latest um, the latest disaster disaster of the day. Where do you find inspiration for your, for your, you have a very interesting way of writing because you see places, you go to concrete places. And I think one thing that has not been good for our climate journalism, when I look over a couple of decades, is that it's very much driven by experts. We have a lot of stats and we have the same, maybe 10, 15 genres of photographs. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's very much people from the part of the world that is least affected, scientists in our part of the world telling people in China that they cannot use fossil fuels like we do or that India, they should make an energy transition that we never managed to. So I think there's a lot of bias towards expertise, a lot of bias towards all part of the world. And I find it hard to find inspiration. Where do you find inspiration? Well, I guess I find inspiration. I mean, I suppose inspiration is kind of has connotations of, you know, um, I'm not sure about happiness, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I suppose you could say, you know, this is an amazing story, a fascinating story, you know, and it's, um, you know, when I wrote The Sixth Extinction, you know, look, it's horrifying, obviously, it, it's, it, it couldn't be more horrifying on some level, but it's also journalists go looking for stories, you know, this is the biggest story of all time, really, on some level. And so our, our challenge is to you know, try to convey that to people because I think that, you know, one of the difficulties of, about writing about climate change is it's it's somewhat complicated. It's not like the typical stories we're used to are very human. They're very human stories. You know, someone said that and someone said that and that, you know, we can all understand they're fighting or, you know, but climate change works according to the rules of geophysics, um, which, you know, even climate scientists don't fully have any sense of how the climate, you know, they've been surprised by a lot of things that have happened this summer, for example, which, you know, should scare the hell out of us. Um, and so that, I think, is something that's that's difficult to communicate. It's difficult to communicate that this is not really a human story. What we do is crucially important. We've set this process in motion, but we don't entirely control this process. And that is makes it very difficult for storytelling purposes. In in your latest book, Under a White Sky, there is a phrase that really struck me. You write about the additional three pages uh, where people writing about climate change or the biodiversity crisis, they first show how bad it is. And then it's like a ritual in the end. You say, well, we have Greta Thunberg, we have Fridays for Future, or Joe Biden will put out this great package. So 
it's always like there's a sense of obligation to give people hope. And I do feel that obligation. You know, if I talk to young people, I do feel the obligation, not of saying things will be okay, but of saying there are things that can be done and that think that we can do, and it's a meaningful effort. So I think that's also a very complicated question. But you say you don't want to write these additional three pages uh, inducing optimism in the end. Well, I think that we've all, you know, sort of fallen victim, I guess. I guess <laughs> I would give you, you know, my worldview. You know, it's sort of like a Hollywood thing. You know, at the end, there's going to be a happy ending. Well, there isn't always a happy ending, you know, and and um i sort of feel like that's just more part of part of consumer culture again getting us to i i could make an argument that all of those you know endings are really actually not getting people to act they're getting people to feel comfortable in 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 the fact that they're not really acting but something's going to happen it's going to it's going to get better and you know to in, invoke uh, uh greta uh <laughs> you know um a heroine and um you know she she has this line that i really like where she was excoriating she was in brussels and she was excoriating the members of the european parliament and she said you know you 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 know hope is something you have to earn you don't you don't just get <laughs> it you know and i i guess i i agree with her i don't think that we should be always handed hope just the way you know we're handed it at the end of a at the end of a movie there's also this movement out that I think is started by Rebecca Solid now saying it's not too late. And, and I told some young kids about this because we have an election coming up in, in Denmark. And I feel at the moment here, I think the physical evidence of climate change is approaching and approaching. And at the same time, the sensation that there's not some, we're a very small country. We're a very privileged country. We can reach a consensus here. We can make reductions here. But we're looking at America, we're looking at India, we're looking at China. And I'm not saying that we're better than you guys. I'm just saying, well, you're a lot larger entities. And it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult to make reductions for 350 million people than for, for 6 million privileged people here. here. And, and when I talk, told them about this Rebecca Solnit campaign, it's not too late. They really, really, really liked it. And they, I, th I think they understand that it's not a happy ending that I'm suggesting. What do you think of this approach? Well, I think that, it's, you know, look, obviously it's not too late. I mean, it's never too late. You know, we're never, uh, I think that it's important to see, to point out, we never get to say, oh, it's just too late. You know, there were, but I think it's also important to be honest and say, look, it is too late for some things. It's too late for, you know, the damage that's already been done. We're not getting back, you know, another Thing I'm not sure people appreciate about climate change is, you know, you never go back. You don't go back to the climate that you had before. You're only going, this is only going in one direction. And the question that's before us now is how far in the wrong direction we're going to go. And, you know, that's unfortunate. That's not the situation you'd, you'd want to be in. And it's not what you'd want to tell young people, look, you know, the world's just going to keep getting hotter, uh, probably for most of your life. But, you know, the question is, are we going to have a habitable planet, you know, for your children and your grandchildren? Uh, and that part of the equation is still up in the air. Um, but it's the truth. And I think you can't tell people, you know, if you do X or Y, things will get better. And then they look around the following year. Well, they haven't gotten any better, you know. So, so we're kind of in a bind. I mean, we're stuck between, you know, human psychology and geophysics 
in a place that I don't think we've ever been before. No, I don't remember who said that if the devil was to come up with a problem for the humans, it would be climate change for so many different reasons. I want to turn to your book, The Six Extinctions, which in Danish is Tenshede Mesodudun. We're so delighted that this book is finally out in, in Danish. I'm going to give it for a lot of Christmas presents. I can I can, pro- I, I can promise you that. It's a great stocking stuffer, yeah. <laughs> it, it, really, it really is a very impressive and enormously ambitious project for a journalist. How did you come up with this project originally? Well, I came up with it, you know, I, I sort of tell the story at the beginning of the book, and it's 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 basically a true story. I... Um, <laughs> I had just written this series that I mentioned on climate change, and I was very interested in, you know, the ways that we are changing the world. I'd been introduced to this concept of the Anthropocene, and I was just interested in all the ways that humans are changing the world. And I I read about this um, phenomenon that was being called the amphibian crisis, and just, um, you know, amphibians were we're just dying all around the world and people are having a hard time figuring out why. And then just sort of right at that point that I was thinking about writing it, there was also, we had, we had a bat crisis, which, which I'm not sure Europeans are aware of it. It was probably a fungal disease that was probably brought over from Europe actually. Hmm. Um, And millions of bats were dying right near where I live. They're just, you know, usually an extinction happens in a different way. You know, you, you, it doesn't happen in a in a great you know sort of slaughter. Uh, it's just you know you cut down on the reproductive rate and eventually something goes extinct. But this was a real a, a disease that was really visible and killing a lot of animals, and people were seeing it, and uh, they were also searching for answers. And I sort of thought, well, there's something very weird going on here. <laughs> and I encountered this idea as I was reading around about the sixth extinction. It's certainly not my idea. Um, and that, and it seemed to me that that wow, that that's huge, and people ought to ought to know about it. People really ought to read about it. But you you also tell the story of the first five mass extinctions, and I should say that there could be more extinctions actually before uh, I think we have, we go five hundred million years back or something like that. But but the first five extinctions, and something that's very very interesting in the opening of the book is that you write the story about how scientists in the 18th century, they didn't recognize, they didn't know of the idea of mass extinctions. You know, quite advanced scientists, they didn't know that extinctions had actually taken place. Uh, can you tell us the, this story? I think it's very, today all kids know it because kids know about dinosaurs. So then they know that we have this big kid, animals, and they're not here anymore. Why was it so hard for scientists in in, in the 18th century to, to to understand this idea of mass extinction? Well, they, as you say, they didn't have any concept of extinction. So we have to go back. This is, you know, this is pre-Darwin. They don't have any concept of evolution. So, you know, they're sort of prevailing theory, even among people who called themselves, no one called themselves a scientist. There was That word hadn't been invented yet, but they called themselves natural philosophers or they were naturalists. And, you know, the idea was, you know, God had created, there was a creation and God had created everything. And why would, why would God create something and then kill it off? So it seemed very violated um, of sort of fundamental tenet of life. <laughs> How's that? And so people were very resistant 
uh, to the idea, even though in late 18th and early 19th centuries, as Europeans moved around the world, they encountered more and more evidence of extinction, right? So they encountered, you know, bones that are either fossil or sub-fossilized bones of creatures that they couldn't, had never seen and couldn't imagine seeing. And what really brought this to a crisis, uh, as I tell that story in my book, and it, I think it is a really interesting story, was the mastodon, which um, in the new world, it was a new world animal, so it was found and everywhere in the U.S. at the time. You know, you didn't have to dig very deep and you'd come, come upon these enormous, enormous skeletons of these mastodons who it seemed pretty clear we're not around, you know, you never <laughs> one wandering around, but people thought, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, I quote him, he, when he sent Lewis and Clark uh, to the Western US, right? So it was a huge continent, much of which was unexplored by Europeans. And he hoped they would find a mastodon. He hoped they'd find one out West. Um, but it was a Frenchman, Georges Cuvier, who was a huge towering figure in his day, who was sort of the Darwin before Darwin, he finally, you know, made, it was almost not a scientific discovery. It was just a sort of logical inference. Look, these things aren't around anymore. Do we see them around? They're not <laughs> around. So something went extinct. And that really introduced the concept of extinction. And when people started to look around, that's when you started to find, you know, fossils of uh, not yet dinosaurs, but of ichthyosaurs, just these huge animals of very strange animals that we could not fit into our system of taxonomy. And then there's this, this concept of the catastrophic extinction and, and how, how do they differ? Well, as soon as Cuvier um, introduced the extinction, the concept of extinction, he thought all extinctions had occurred in a catastrophic fashion because he had his own set of beliefs about the natural world and he couldn't imagine Uh, why would an organism go extinct? It was clearly well suited to its environment. Why wouldn't it be there? Um, and that was a product of his own sort of set of, of beliefs. And he, so he said, well, the only reason things would go extinct is if the world changed. And he talked about revolutions on the surface of the earth. Mm -hmm. And he saw evidence of a pretty recent revolution, which we would now say was the debris left over from the last ice age. But in France at the time and all over Europe, you can see evidence of the last glaciation. And, and when he looked at that, he said, well, there, something very awful must have happened. And these creatures, these mastodons, these mammoths, who he also knew, he had a, and you know, he, the, you know, people knew more than we give them credit for, he knew had died out fairly recently because they found their bones on the surface of the earth. Um, he said, well, they must have been killed off in this terrible crisis. Um, now, the interesting thing is, as we've untangled, and, and so that, and when Darwin came along and Lyle, Charles Lyle, who is sort of considered the father of geology, they really fought back against this kind of catastrophism, which they thought was very religiously, you know, motivated, even though Cuvier, in Cuvier's case, it really wasn't. But they said, look, that's very unscientific. Things happen very slowly. They only happen very slowly in the natural world. Uh, and so then when we get again evidence that there have been catastrophes <laughs> on the surface of the earth and we get that, we don't really get good evidence of that until the 80s, 1980s, when people start to look uh, at the uh, end Cretaceous extinction, which we now have pretty good evidence was caused by an asteroid impact. 
So there's a lot of resistance to that uh, theory because it seems to be a return to this kind of biblically-based <laughs> catastrophism. But it actually seemed that there was something right about this catastrophe. And, you know, it happened in just one that must have been very, very traumatic day, isn't that? Or at least we suppose that it happened in one day. What is it, 66 million years ago or something like that? Yeah. And so, you know, nowadays, I think that there's a much more, um, you know, the way that people, geologists look at history as a kind of kind of a hybrid. I mean... I quote one geologist who says, you know, uh, the history of life is long periods uh, of boredom interrupted occasionally by panic. And <laughs> occasionally something happens and it may be an asteroid impact that happens very fast, or it may be something that happens much more slowly on the order of a hundred thousand years, but it's still very fast geologically speaking that organisms can adapt to, you know, they just don't have time in the course of evolution to adapt to, and a lot of them drop out and we've had, you know, the six extinctions, so we've had five of those. And um, to think that we're, and when you think at the rate at which humans are changing the planet, which in many ways is just unprecedented in the history of life, except perhaps for that day that the asteroid landed, um, that's pretty suggestive and pretty frightening. When you wrote the book, did you want people to understand these first five mass extinctions to get the contrast with the extinction that we're going through through now? Was that part of your narrative scheme, so to speak? Because it seems very convincing that this extinction that we're going through right now, that we're both witnessing and as a species causing, differs from all the others. Well, I wanted, I guess there are a couple of things, you know, I was, I thought this intellectual history was very interesting. And I wanted to tell that story, but I also think there's a certain resistance that people have like, well, you know, we are still living in this kind of aftermath of Darwin and Lyle who did a lot to sort of convince, you know, a scientific view has come to be, well, well, people are not that important, right? You know, we're not <laughs> that important. And we've had to, we're just another, you know, ape basically <laughs> had to, readjust that theory again, I think, in light of our impacts. We we may just be just another ape, but we are an ape that, you know, is burning fossil fuels. Um, we are an ape that has colonized all, every corner of the planet. Our, our impacts are so huge that we sort of do have to face up to the fact, you know, and you actually, you know, still get a lot of, you know, pushback, I think, in, in the States, at least, you know, among you know, religious community, well, you know, that people don't do that, you know, God created the world and God is not going to, you know, change the climate or whatever. Uh, but, you know, I think that we have to come to grips with the fact that we are doing all these things. We are a geological force and we've been slow, I think, to get our minds around that. When your book came out, I remember the reviews when it came out almost 10 year, years ago now. At the time, I thought it was an, it was not an entirely new thought, but for a broader public, it was new thought. I think today, a lot of people have taken it down here, actually. I think uh, partly because of your book, it's been very, very influential. Do you not think that it has changed over the time since the book came out? Yeah, I do. I think, I think people have 
you know, I think the the concept for various reasons has gotten out there. Um, and I think that that sense, you know, that people are changing the world, this debate, which I talk about in the book about whether we should rename the geological epoch that we're in, you know, whether we should call it the Anthropocene because we are now a geological force. I think all of these conversations have brought some of these issues to, to public attention. The, the concept of the Anthropocene was also part of your first book, actually. You write about it in, in, in the end of the first, and it seems you've been dealing with it for quite some, some time. And, and there's also some criticism of this concept of, of the Anthropocene. One of them is from Donna Haraway that I spoke to earlier this year. And she said, well, the problem, and she said, well, she's all about addition, not extraction. So it's not like she was against it. She wanted to add something to it. She said, well, when you speak about the Anthropocene, you say that, humans as a species did it, that humans are the subject of history. And then we ignore that it's specific humans under specific conditions, under a specific liberal capitalist uh, industrialist regime that day, where she says, well, it becomes almost the metaphysical human and not the specific uh, modern, modern human. What do you think of this criticism? Well, I, I think it's a weird criticism, I'll be frank. I mean, you know, people who talk about, about the Anthropocene, the, the term was sort of popularized by Paul Cutson, who was a, you know, a, a Dutch chemist who worked in Germany, who was one of the three scientists who won the Nobel Prize for drawing the world's attention to ozone-depleting chemicals. And um, in his very first, you know, writings on this, he said, this is, you know, this is a product of industrialization. Of, of course, it's industrialization. We we know that we're not, you know, and when people talk about when did the Anthropocene, you know, begin, there are some theories that would say, well, it began when we started burning fossil fuels, and others who would say it didn't begin until the post-war era, uh, in this moment when, you know, human population exploded, and human fossil fuel use exploded, and all sorts of resource extraction exploded. So yes, clearly, it's a product of industrialization. Is it a product of, of you know, neoliberal capitalism? You know, are the Chinese neoliberal capitalists? They're doing a really good job of, um, you know, uh, participating in this project. So if you want to say, look, it's not all humans, it's not all humans through history. Absolutely, that's true. That that was never part of the equation. If you want to say it's a function of industrialization and only those people who have participated in industrialization over the last 200 or the last 80 years or whatever are really behind this. Yes, I agree. That's absolutely true. But I don't think that really changes the basic fundamental notion here. I could also see your work as a kind of a long study of this long and complicated relation between humans and nature. Uh, and how did that, how did your view on that evolve over time? Because it seems in your latest book that you're really exploring some new territory. It's like saying, well, definitely there's no going back. There's no innocent, there's no innocent nature. We are through the fact that we're having agriculture. We're already interfering. And the question is, how should we interfere? And what are the limits of, of our interference? And it seems that what was the point in the, the sixth extinction is kind of the premise for, for under a 
And what can you explore from there with a very open and, and a very, very interesting approach? How, how did your own view change over time? Well, I, I think that, you know, I went into this, you know, I'm a, a child, I guess, of the 1970s, you know, and I was a little too young for the first Earth Day. But I, I definitely, you know, went into this with a, a certain worldview. And I have had to also have, as you, as you suggest, had my own, you know, you know, worldview shaken. And I'm sort of, you know, I would consider myself an old school, you know, environmentalist, and we should leave as much of the world un, unruined as possible. But I think that climate change and, and also acknowledging, you know, look, there's, there's 8 billion people on the planet. We are not leaving, you know, huge parts of the world untouched. I think acknowledging these tensions, and I guess it gets back to you know some what we were talking about a bit at the beginning again. I think a lot of our old stories that we tell ourselves, they're no longer that useful, and we have, you know, I guess I would say we need some new stories, and we need, or at least we need to be thinking about things in new ways, and and that is what I've been trying to do. You know, say well those stories they're nice stories, you know, but they don't probably don't get us where we need to go. I want to ask you here in the end about something that, that preoccupies us a lot here in Denmark as well. And that's, of course, the environmental policies in, in America. Because, you know, when I was growing up, I'm a child of the 70s as well. My my parents told me about Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. And it was like one of the books where I said, well, books can actually change the world. It takes time, but it will change the world. And they told me about because, you know, we didn't like Nixon here in Denmark. He wasn't very popular. But they always said, well, remember, he was an environmentalist. So so actually, when I was growing up, America was kind of a front runner environmentally. And then, of course, over the last couple of decades, we've we've been doubting a lot where you were at, 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 at this point. And, you know, Jimmy Carter, he wanted to to put solar panels on 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 the White House. And I think we feel that if America does not act, then we don't have a chance. So you're like you're kind of holding our our destiny. I know the Chinese are as well. So when Biden came into office, I think we were very optimistic about it. And you know, he was someone who'd been around for a long time. You had this um, sunrise movement, and you had some great progressive plans by Green New Deal, different different plans. And maybe he was the one to enact it. And I thought, you know this compromise, making it something that the, the working class could gain on, saying, well, this is a green reindustrialization of America. And then, of course, we're very disappointed with, with what happened to Build Back Better. And then all of a sudden comes this Inflation Reduction Act. And on the one hand, you know, we wrote on the front page, Green Breakthrough in America. I know it's a low bar, but it was the biggest piece of climate legislation in the history of America. On the other hand, looking at it, I feel like there is nothing saying here we should change our lifestyle. There's no carbon tax. There's nothing here saying we should reduce our our, our energy consumption. So, you know, it feels like a triumph and a failure at the same time. And I wonder how you see that. I, I think that's that's very well said. And I think that, you know, the fact that it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, sort of sort of says it all. You know, I mean, American politics... I don't want to depress your audience more than they're already depressed, but <laughs> it's very hard to exaggerate. I'm not sure anyone can appreciate, you know, Americans can barely, we can't deal with it. You know, how broken our politics are. They're really in, you know, terrible shape or, you know, a, 
failing democracy. And I think that we're so polarized. And so I think that, you know, the bill is to talk about, to talk to Americans about, well, you know, actually we can't just continue to live exactly the way we've always lived is considered so politically dangerous uh, that, you know, even people who know better, you know, sort of don't want to do it. So I think that this is the best that could be done uh, and we do have to celebrate it, but it leaves open, very open, uh, the question of, you know, where we go from here. And, you know, I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know if it will play out on the high end of expectations, the low end of expectations. I don't know if Joe Biden will be in the White House two years from now. It's really, you know, the future is very, very much up for grabs. So I guess on a hopeful note, I would say, you know, let's try to focus on the fact that something did get done, something finally, and some parts of it will be very hard to unravel. Something that we're always impressed by here in Denmark is the pace with things can happen within America. That, you know, all of a sudden you build this tech giants. I know they're not exclusively a force for good, but you know, things happen very rapidly. I, I see that your politics seems broken, but there's a civil society and there's a business community. And this is weird for me as a leftist to say, but you know, I hope there's kind of a green industrial complex arising. Do you see those dynamics at play in America? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that, you know, if you had to have, say what the biggest, you know, impact this bill will have, it's, it's really just tax credits, a lot, a lot of tax credits. That's what it is. And it will make, it will push a lot of, capital in certain directions. And, you know, a lot of it won't pan out, um, but a lot of it will. And I think that there was a lot of money waiting to go into some of these things. And now these tax credits are set for 10 years. So that's a pretty long chunk of time. And I know that the Danes have also had trouble with this. You, you know, you, you put in some regime and then you take it back. And that really, you know, messes with people's business plans. And so I think that the long, fairly long, medium, I guess, horizon here, you know, I, I do think I, I'm working on a piece. I went, I went to visit a bunch of sort of tech startups, and I can tell you, you know, I am not a tech person. I'm not <laughs> waiting for tech to solve us, to uh, save us. But there are amazing things going on. There are really smart people working on it. You know, money talks, as we say in the U.S. Everyone else walks. Uh, and if there's money going into things, you're going to attract a lot of talent, uh, talented young people. And I do think you will see some important breakthroughs. <laughs> so we didn't end with the additional three pages, but we went, <laughs> we went through we went through a lot of a lot of dark themes. But thank you so much for your work as a journalist. It's very helpful. It's inspirational reading. Thank you for taking your time, Elizabeth Colbert. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Det var så årets første langsom samtale med Elisabeth Colbert i næste uge. Der skal vi tale om krigen, vi skal tale om Europa, vi skal tale om, hvad covid har gjort ved os alle sammen. Vi skal nemlig tale med den enestående tysk-franske forfatter og forsker Ulrike Gero i anledning af hendes seneste bog. Men vi skal tale om alt det, der sker. Ulrike Gero tror på et stort og stærkt Europa, men hun er også redselslagen over hvordan Venstrefløjen har givet op og ikke har været med til at skabe det. Det er Ulrike Giroux' projekt. 
Som vi også her et stykke inde i krigen og langt inde i meget dramatiske tider for Europa er konfronteret med en masse kriser, som vi ikke kan overskue, men bliver nødt til at overveje i fællesskab. Det er det, der er anledning til, at vi næste uge taler med Ulrike Gero. Og så vil jeg minde om, at hvis man er interesseret i bogen Langsomme Samtaler, så kan man faktisk gå ind og købe den på information.dk-butik, hvor man kan få den til det, vi i Jylland kalder for en rigtig billig penge. Denne her udgave af Langsomme Samtaler var produceret af redaktionens meget gode ven og hjælper Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Tak for, at hun også er tilbage og klar til endnu en sæson. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.